Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and purpose. And what I share with you is highly confirmed by objective evidence, by transformed lives around the world from every background, which is not found in any other belief. Because what I am sharing with you isn't mere religion or religiosity. It is reality. For those of you that are new, I want to refer you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where you will discover a flip book which has very original writing by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me. As a gift to you, you can check it out, read it, there are many links in that flip book. Those are in red and go to YouTube videos, which shows very profound and amazing evidence from many fields of science and archeology span that confirms the reality of what I am sharing here. And I don't share anything with any preparation. I just speak from my heart. There's nothing prepared here. And I am seeking to speak prophetically, to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me. For those that are new, there is a message, which is to people from every background, no matter what your background is. If you're hungry and thirsty for what is real, for what is truth and reality, you can discover it that at my site at ultimatemeaning.com, there's also videos there where I have a whole gallery of messages and the one that's the largest video is the most recent and the one that presents a message that answers many of the hardest questions as does the flip book. Uh, very original answers often. So check it all out for yourself. This is for those that have come to know the one true God, for whom to know is life eternal through Jesus Christ. I am talking about the very ultimate perfection and manifestation of love, which is the very source of love. A love from which comes forth all creation. We were created with beings that are the source of our own action. We are self-originating because we are created with the capacity to love. And that requires that we have our own free will or in other words, our self-originating. Without that, all you have is information in and out and nothing more than a mere robot. I'm sharing with you about this ultimate reality. I've written a book, it's titled Afterlife, Incredible Irrefutable, which you can purchase on Amazon. It's 368 pages in a large six by nine paperback or get it on one of your digital devices such as your Android or iPhone or whatever you're using. And you will discover answers there. 
that show the reality of the afterlife, which is irrefutable. And it points to this ultimate source of love that I am describing here, which is who the one true God could only possibly be. I'm not just talking about uh, love with feeling. I'm talking about the highest form of love, a love that has that quality that always freely chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice, because any lesser choice as such would have a measure of corruption in it. The love I am talking about is so pure and integral that it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to this love that always chooses the highest lasting good. It is the very antithesis of corruption, the very destroyer of corruption. It will not tolerate counterfeit love or love that condones what is contrary to love and has corruption in it, which is not love. I want to share with you about Yahweh, Elohim, which is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is translated in English, Lord, yeah, which is Yahweh, God, which is Elohim, meaning the Almighty's, plural. Yahweh, the Almighty's, referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, for God to be almighty, he must be in personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence, thus three personages. He must be in personage beyond creation, above and separate and beyond creation as the Father, in the creation realm that he's created as the Son. In fact, the word Son basically means expression or word. In fact, in Hebrews 1, 3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father, the perfection, the only perfection of the being of the Father in personage in the creation realm. To experience it, to communicate, and so on. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the third aspect of existence in omnipresence filling all dimensions of creation and of time and space in creation and beyond with the Father. And so if you were the ultimate, you would also, in order to rule in those three ultimate aspects of existence, have to have conscious intelligence, in other words, personage or personality. And so yes, there's only one God and he rules in three personages. And so I want to share with you about this love that is so beyond our comprehension. I'm thinking about the terrible tragedies that are happening around the world right now. With the war that is impending in Israel, you see today is October the 21st of 2023 on Saturday. I believe the 14th day of the war that has started in Israel and it's not even hardly begun. And the implications are very ominous because it is very obvious that it's going to pull in probably the whole world into a third world war, possibly in that regards. Now I will say, because I believe in the word of God, the Bible, 
that what we find in the prophecy of Ezekiel in 38 and 39 may be on the verge of being fulfilled. In fact, I met a Romanian general that was one of the top generals in Romania who was converted and came to Christ and severely persecuted once he came to Christ and fled, obviously, and he ended up out near where I live here because I was in a meeting and he was sitting at the back of this meeting about five or seven years ago and told me that he felt God impressing him to give me a book and I forgot the title of the book. I gave the book to someone they never gave it back. But in the book, he writes about the coming war that is going to happen in Israel and he mentioned about 100,000 missiles pointing at Israel from the north, which is actually now possibly 200,000 missiles, according to many sources. And that when they began to fire them, and they're very accurate, they could easily destroy all of Israel once those missiles begin to fire. And Esau, one of the top leaders in Israel in the army, order a nuclear hit upon northern Lebanon, and yes, it was hit with an atomic bomb. I don't know if it was hydrogen or atomic, but definitely a bomb that it was atomic. And when that happened, he saw then that Iran and other larger companies were coming, countries were coming in against Israel. Well, this is what we see described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which says, in the latter days, when Israel is gathered out of all nations, that this would happen. And that when this would happen, that God would destroy all of those nations that thought they could easily destroy Israel by laying this trap for them, he will destroy them by a mighty earthquake, and I guess other factors, because they'll start to fight each other. <clears throat> they will be just picking up from the many people that have died, bones for seven years, remains of people for seven years, according to that prophecy in Ezekiel. We are probably on the verge of that time right now. And we see that the manifestation of the sons of light and the sons of darkness has become very evident all around the world. Very evident indeed all around the world. Look at the institutions, almost all the governments, corruption in high places, in the educational institutions, in the medical institutions. I needn't tell you all the details. Most of you know all about it. It's obvious that the weed are evident and the terrors are evident. It is time, and it says that in Joel, it is that time when multitudes, multitudes are coming into the valley of decision where they must decide between whether they are going to submit to darkness or they are going to pay the price to follow truth and reality. In Revelations 14, it describes the chronological order of events. Revelations 14 
describes three or angels in chronological order. The first angel comes out saying, Fear God and worship him that made heaven and earth and preaches an, what is called the everlasting gospel. And I am one of those that is preaching the everlasting gospel. And so are others. And that is what that angel represents. And we are in that time when the harvest is ripe. Yes, multitudes are in the valley of decision. They are becoming ripe for the harvest to come in to conversion, to know the one true eternal God for whom to know is life eternal. And of course, the next angel is emphasizing that Babylon, Babylon is fallen. The mother of harlots that sits on the many waters around the globe, that was once pure but became a harlot. Democracies that call themselves democracies have now become corrupt and are flaunting abominations in the face of the Almighty's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh. Yahweh means the ultimate reality, separate and above and beyond creation. And then the angel that follows after that says, If any man worship the beast in his image, receive his mark in his forehead and his hand, basically describes their eternal damnation. And then at the end of Revelations 14, it describes the two harvests. It is obvious that the first harvest is the multitudes of souls that are brought into the kingdom of God. And it is obvious that the second harvest, which represents blood coming up to the horse's bridle symbolically, is the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist system around the world and their armies. As Christ returns and that sword of light comes out of his mouth, that sharp two-edged sword of light, and destroys the Antichrist armies of the world. At that time, the Mount of Olives splits in half as described in the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 12. Read chapter 12 through 14. The prophecies of the last days. And it says that when that happens... When the Mount of Olives splits in half, and now they know there's an earthquake right through the middle, an earthquake fault right through the middle of the Mount of Olives. And the Messiah comes with thousands and thousands and multitudes of the saints from throughout the ages, from the time of Adam and Eve until now. At that time, the kingdom of God will be filling the whole earth, there will be that mighty earthquake that causes everything around the world to collapse. But wherever the people of God are, it will not collapse. Also, the air will fill with the glory and the presence of God and such a glory and a brightness, and it will cause the wicked that are breathing the air to literally burn to ashes as this superior dimension merges with this very inferior third dimension. I talk about the various dimensions that they've discovered through particle physics and so on, uh, the mathematical analysis of it and so on in my book. The secular sciences would describe the afterlife as the fifth dimension, many of them, far superior to the physical. In fact, 
so many people when they die and they're dead and they're on the operating table and the doctors know from the instruments they're completely dead. Some for almost two hours like Dean Braxton and there are many others. You can look up Dean and Braxton, B-R-A-X-T-O-N on YouTube and type in NDE standing for near-death experiences. He's one of many. How many of them who have been dead for a long time when they come back tell the doctors the details of what they were talking about, what they were doing while they were totally dead. This repeats itself over and over. They tell the details of what they were seeing their family doing 10 blocks away down the road or in the hall nearby and what they were talking about that they could not have known. All of these things repeat itself over and over. And they say it was so real one fellow described it as so real that it could be compared to the 3D dimension that we are in as opposed to 2D, which would be like writing on paper. That's how much more real it is. And their intelligence is so great they can observe whole, whole dictionaries and more than that within a few moments. In fact, their whole life, including every thought and how it affected every person 10 times and more over if you had a negative thought, uh, an evil thought, how it affected that person more evil, and so on. Just your thoughts. These are, I could get into talking about something like this, which is very interesting and very encouraging. There is a great hope. But I'm here to share what God has called me to do in this message. So before I share this message, I want to explain to those that have come to know the one true God who is life eternal a bit more even though there's a far more detail of description on my video at ultimatemeaning.com I described how this love has such purity and integrity yes it's as it were a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to this love which is who God is but it is so transcendent in its integrity that God could actually become a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice to take all of your free will choices against his love upon himself in judgment, which he did in Jesus Christ on the cross. He humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and he suffered more than you, a mere creature, on the cross. Can you comprehend that? And Dean Braxton knew when he was standing before Jesus Christ in heaven and also Dale Black and many others that I can think of, they experienced such love from Jesus Christ who comes out of the greater light which is God the Father to communicate to them on a more creature personal level. The love was so intense from Jesus Christ that they knew that if they were the only ones that God created, that he would have humbled himself more than them, suffered more than them on the cross, more than you on the cross, so that you could choose to repent and receive his forgiveness because of his death on the cross. You say, well, what about all of those before Christ came? Remember I said this is an everlasting gospel? 
This message was from the very time of Adam and Eve in the history of this world. And that message is that there is only one God and that he is provided because of the quality of his being without violating the integrity of his love, which will not tolerate the slightest corruption. He has provided a way of forgiveness because his love is so transcendent upon the foundation of that integrity that he could take the judgment upon himself for you. How can you reject that love? How can anyone reject someone that would love them that much? He loves you that much. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son on the cross for you. I want to tell you that this everlasting gospel existed before the world was created because it says that he was slain before the foundation of the world in the King James Version. Basically, it's saying that the reality of God's being of love was not just a capacity before this time and space realm, but it was already a reality in the being of God that he could have such a perfection of being that he could take judgment upon himself for you. The one that created a universe so vast and so great that it takes light seven years to travel around the world in one second and yet to get to the closest star, it takes, what is it, five or seven years. And there is, our sun is a thousand times bigger than the earth. And there are suns or stars that are a thousand times bigger than our sun. And in our galaxy alone, there's estimated to be between 200 billion and 400 billion stars. And now the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a hundred times more powerful than the Hubble and a million miles away from the Earth and can see way more, has totally decimated the Big Bang Theory so that the top proponents of it no longer believe in it. And that telescope and all these telescopes, with all the stars they see, know there's enough stars for every grain of sand that there would be a thousand stars. For every person, almost eight billion people on earth, I forget if it's each one would have 18 trillion or 80 trillion. I forgot now. And yet God is so great. Yeah, he's that great that he could come down to this little speck of a planet. For example, in Genesis 18, you'll read about Abraham and there's three Men standing before him that probably look very magnificent beyond normal men. They look like man to him, and he bows before them and says, Can I make you a meal? He calls his servant to make them a tremendous meal. They all eat together outside the tent. And he addresses one of them as Yahweh, the most sacred name for the one true eternal God. Yes, Jesus Christ communicated with Abraham just before he sent the other two angels to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which is an historical fact. And he ascended up to heaven, Yahweh from Abraham, after that time having that meal. I am sharing with you the good news of a God that is that great, that his life's blood was poured out unto death and his body was broken in terrible pain and humiliation unto death. So you could choose to come into 
forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. There is no love greater than this love. There is no love that can be imagined that is greater than this love. And there is no love that could be trustworthy but this love to contain unlimited power, unlimited life, and unlimited authority without being corrupted by it or using it in a corrupt way, thus indicative that he is the very source. And I am preaching this everlasting gospel now to you. Wake up, world. Wake up. We're about to see momentous events that will impact every one of our lives to either go in the direction of hardening our hearts against God and his love to total destruction and eternal torment and separation from the love of God, or to receive this everlasting gospel and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, I cast lots to facilitate speaking prophetically. You see, the word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I will seek to allow God to speak through me here. In Revelations 19.10, it says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we worship God out of great thankfulness and humility and spirit and in truth and in great reverence, we are filled with his spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that can bring forth utterances that come from the spirit of God. That's what Revelations 19.10 is explaining. As we worship God, the spirit of prophecy comes through us that testifies of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. The reality of the many aspects of his kingdom built upon Jesus Christ. Of him and through him and to him are all things. Speaking of Yahweh the Almighty's, the fullness of the Godhead that dwells in Jesus Christ, that dwells in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. I am here today, therefore, to explain to you that I cast lots with two random applications on the internet to get the possibility of any two chapters. I cast lots in great reverence before God, praying with great reverence over these applications. That they would bear witness with the same message and theme in those two chapters, and then with only a half hour preparation of just pasting scripture mainly, I speak, and since I'm only doing one message each week, and I do this almost every day of the week, I'm going to only touch on certain ones that God leads me to, and I don't know which ones they are. But I'll be just speaking to facilitate speaking prophetically. I don't prepare. I allow God to speak through me. Now, there is also a song, a worship song that I choose by the casting of Lot from a list, a playlist right now of 149 songs that I have on my website at loverealize.com where I have all my messages on video as well. And it's also on ultimatemeaning.com. So please feel free to check that out. 
and enjoy those worship songs. And if you go on YouTube, you can shuttle them and listen to them. Now, most of them are songs of exhortation. Uh, the ones that are more aspected, or that have more of a focus on just the heart, expressing its emotion and thankfulness to God and reverence and so on. More of those kind of songs I will eventually be getting up there from a whole bunch of other songs I recorded from an amazing congregation that had amazing songs many years ago. Um, so, but right now these are, I don't, the songs that are on my site have quality meaning in the words, quality tunes. They, are, they can be played on an overhead projector if it's connected to the internet because they're on YouTube, because some of them I've created and put up on YouTube, others I've found there. Many are from the underground church in China that was severely persecuted under the work of Watchman Nee, who was martyred in 1972. Many are from throughout church history as well. So today I cast lots and I want to share the song now that I received and so we will go to that song and play it. I will bring myself up when I'm ready for this song here. And I want to share with you that if a person isn't right with God, this song that we're about to sing would not be a reality in their lives. If they're lukewarm, it will not be a reality in this is only a reality. If you have confessed your sins and acknowledged them and repented of them, what is in this song? So we'll begin to play it. I'll enlarge it and I'll enlarge myself soon. Him, 
life is short. Death's enthralling, bonds are broken. Resurrection life is known. Christ through death has crushed the devil. World and demons by his might. From the power of darkness brought me to the realm of life. song. Just got to turn that off there one sec. Bring myself back up. There we go. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Just going to make sure everything's okay here. Okay. One moment here. I will be. So we'll go to um, the uh, scriptures that I received this week. By the casting of Lot. Starting with Monday. Actually, I don't think with Monday I did too much. Um, we'll skip Monday and start with Tuesday. And this even is jogging my memory since it's a while back. And we have 1 Samuel chapter 9 and Proverbs 29. Saul was often reproved by David and allowed people to flatter him. Leadership in the church needs to repent of failing to reprove leadership that is leading people astray because of the spirit of pride that has caused them to err in teaching the people. Part of that spirit of pride is evident because People are putting such a strong identity in the leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't highly respect and show great love and uh, to leadership. We are to always communicate and show great respect. But the question is, where is the identity? 
of a person? Is it in their group more than it is in their relationship with God? We are to speak the truth and love to one another. God is not seeking a conformity that is homogenous, that negates individuality of each of our lives, that causes us to be like a bunch of bricks. You see, the fear of rejection, of not being loved by those that love us, that we, we become so consumed with our relationship with one another if we are losing the genuine fear of God in our lives. Then there isn't the integrity there should be. And when there isn't integrity, that is what happens. People will conform to the way other people are. For example, I've been in, in meetings where everyone thinks it's a, the big thing is to cast out demons. So everyone's casting out demons from one another. I saw that happen. And then this movement where everyone's laughing and rolling on the floor, and so everyone does the same thing. This is not having integrity before God. God is, on the other hand, saying, of course, that we are to strive to be of the same heart and, the mind, and mind. But in that striving to be of the same heart and mind, we do not do things just because others are doing them to be accepted by them or because we look up to them more than we sense what God is saying in our spirit. God is seeking a beautiful mosaic that does not negate individuality and part of what is denominative or denominational is the tendency for people to conform around certain beliefs that they have highly esteemed as precious in their particular movement. And then as time goes on, people in leadership are looked up to. They may have a lot of security from wealth and so on from the people below them. And as time goes on, eventually you have a corrupt hierarchy insensitive to the head and a shell forms, which is denominative that limits the fullness of God's glory that causes a conformity to one another and also negates creativity and uniqueness, those two things. God is calling the church to repent of a denominative mindset. And the reason for that, as I said, is failing to enter into the genuine fear of God, to grow in the genuine fear of God. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. The genuine fear of God involves the deep turning of the heart. It's not, it's not so much an intellectual thing. It's far more, it's definitely a consciousness from the heart and a mindset from the heart that acknowledges the integrity of God's love as good because the integrity of God's love requires severity and corruption in our lives personally. 
It requires severity upon this world so that we see all the terrible consequences because of man's rebellion against God in all the suffering around us. And what happened to Cain was he became somewhat bitter or unthankful in his heart because of all the suffering and began to perceive the integrity of God's love, which is the holiness of God, as not good, as something to be appeased, something dictatorial that is controlling and therefore demands sacrifice and appeasement. This is what happens when there's a mindset that focuses more on the negative consequences of suffering around us. Oh, if there's a God, why would he allow all this suffering? can be another mindset and attitude that leads to atheism. And when you begin to perceive God as being more like a dictator, if you have a modern mentality, you might begin to call him, well, maybe he's just a powerful being in outer space. After all, look at all the multitudes of stars there are. And you believe in the theory of evolution. Well, let me tell you that if you look at the ancient writings of the Phoenicians and others, that theory of evolution was way back there around 2000 BC and earlier, where they talked about life coming out of the mud and all of this stuff. Nowadays, if anyone's knowledgeable or knows anything and isn't blinded by all of this mastery of deception that they call fact, called the theory of evolution, they know it's not true. You only have to go to my two sites where I have news links on the homepage a little ways down, and you'll see a link to Genesis Science Network where you will see for yourself the overwhelming evidence that points to the fact that evolution is nothing more than a mastery of deception. It is far from fact. The same with the long ages, and I'd have to get, I can't sidetrack into that here. You can look at some of that in my flip book I told you about. But why am I saying this? Because people begin to have an idolatrous perception of God like Cain that did not perceive the integrity of God's love that required severity on corruption as good. The result is that in the pre-flood world, Cain built a city around which there was an idolatrous monotheistic perception of God. And in the world after the flood, the first city, Irudu, if I'm pronouncing it right, and then the next city after that, Nineveh, built by Nimrod, that was around 15 feet tall. That's what, there was giants then, and Nimrod was a giant, and he was that tall. You can see all the evidence for that. What did Nimrod say? According to the writings of the historian Josephus, which quotes him, ancient writings of Josephus, Nimrod said, I will take vengeance on God because of causing the flood. Now, you can look and say, what kind of God would destroy everything upon the earth? Why did he destroy everything upon the earth? Because of the evil imagination in man's heart and because of all the violence. Oh, yeah, some people teach, oh, it's because everyone started to become, uh, you know, this bad seed where the angels mix with the seed of man. Come on. That's true, too, that those things were going on. But that's not the main reason God brought the flood. It was the evil that was in the heart of men and women, of course, in humanity. 
and the evidence for the worldwide flood is the most overwhelming evidence there is from all the traditional songs of tribes which have been recorded before missionaries went around the world, an enormous book. They all talk about the flood, whether they're South America, Africa, or whatever part of the world. They all have records of the flood in their, in their songs and their oral traditions passed from generation to generation. I don't want to get sidetracked. I'm talking about the fear of God here. So that idolatrous perception of God was in Nineveh. It was the moon god. It then went to Babylon. It can be traced. It can be traced to where all those idols were around the rock and one of them was chosen, which is called the moon god, which is the one that today is acknowledged by a lot of people as you may well know, the crescent moon, you know? A monotheistic, idolatrous God. And we see the result of all these terrorists and the terrible things they do because they're re really worshiping what is an idolatrous perception of God that is actually who Satan is the opposite of God, an antichrist spirit. And so in this chapter, 1 Samuel 9 and Proverbs 29, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured upon his head, that is the head of Saul, and kissed him and said, it is not because the Lord hath anointed thee, is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee captain over the inheritance of the Lord? And we know what happened. Saul was chosen, but God was angry that Israel chose to have a king. And we know the story of Saul that pursued King David. And in Proverbs 29, it says, He that being often reproved and hardened of his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And David really did with his life reprove King Saul. He spared him when he could have killed him. And Saul said, I repent, King David. I'm sorry I did this. I acknowledge I'm wrong. But then he went again. He still was wanting position and power and glory from people more than his relationship with God. And people were putting their identity in Saul more than they were in God. And what was the result? After him saying he repented, he goes and does the same thing again. And David had the opportunity to destroy him again and didn't destroy him. And so I believe God is calling the church in this time to repent and be leadership that has the balance of not on the one hand being dictatorial or on the other hand being appeasing to the people in order to please the people. which means identity is more in your relationship with people than having integrity to speak the truth to them when it might hurt. You see, we're to have salt in one another, the Word of God says, and we're to speak the truth in love. And if you say you have love, but you're unwilling to speak the truth that is to a person's highest good, that is not genuine love. And so there must be the balance of unity with individuality. And if there's the genuine fear of God, there is the balance of humility 
and authority and the leadership and the balance is also in people to one another. Their love is genuine. There's individuality and there's creativity. Let's go on. Because creativity is really lacking in the modern evangelical and charismatic Pentecostal churches in this day and age with all their modern songs that have, there's some good modern songs that are creative, I admit, and but there's many that aren't. Many that are shallow and do not have much meaning in them. And that's just one example. The other is how come all the congregations start with singing? How come they all start with just, you know, being happy, happy, song, song, and no one moves in the gifts of the Spirit. It's all done at the front. The Word of God is clear that each member in the body is supposed to be functioning. They should be facilitated to function in the gifts of the Spirit in every meeting. And the church service should be starting where we become more conscious of Christ in our midst than of the program at the front of, or just jumping into songs right away. We should be causing his house to be a house of prayer where we're on our knees and face and awe before God for a half an hour to an hour. And that should be part of the church service, not a pre-service prayer meeting. So here we have again. On Wednesday, I received 2 Samuel 21 and Esther 5 and I wanted more insight. And I received Psalm 136, and all these chapters really fit together. In the first two chapters, there is serious impending judgment upon the people of God, and then great deliverance and victory, which happens because of his people paying the price to turn away the cause of God's judgment and wrath. And so what do we find here in... Um, 2 Samuel 21, 1-7. And so, oh, I've got an awful lot of 2 Samuel here to read. I will just try to read a little bit of this. What we see in 2 Samuel here is that there was a famine in the land for three years, and King David was inquiring of God as to why there was the famine. And the Lord showed him that Saul was so zealous in his zeal that he violated God's word and killed the Gibeonites, which he was not supposed to do. And so there was this famine. The Gibeonites, I believe, were the ones that made a covenant. And so the Lord showed King David, that he had to appease the Gibeonites in order for this famine to be broken. And so, he asked the Gibeonites what they required. And it says here in verse 5, And they answered the king, The man that consumed us, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto Yahweh. 
in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Furthermore, there was other things that were causing this curse to continue with the famine. And it was because one of the daughters of Saul was mourning over the death of her sons and was not allowing birds to land on the bones and so on. And, and David was told this, and so he buried those bones. And it was told, David, that what Rispah, the daughter of Aha, no, Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done. So he, she's the concubine of Saul. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, when the Philistines had slain Saul and Gibor. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son. And so they buried them. So that that practice, and then that was broken. And so that's what happened there. And then the other scripture is about Esther. And it's Esther chapter 5 where she's coming before the king and he can hold out his scepter and allow her to be killed because people weren't supposed to come before the king that way. And he showed mercy to her and Esther risked her life and also fasted for three days and called others to fast with her. And she fasted without food and drink for three days and God brought this amazing deliverance where the children of Israel were about to be destroyed. We are living in that time right now where there's impending judgment and wrath and God is calling his people to wake up and to seek the Lord because his coming draws near and so does the judgment. And judgment first begins at the house of God and then it goes in its ring of judgment right out it says the fire is jealousy will devour the whole earth. I don't want to go into talking too much for time and all of these various scriptures. I cannot go into Psalms here, but it, it does fit in with all of the rest. One can preach a, preach a wonderful message on that. I'm just touching on what God has given this week. So on Thursday, I received 1 Chronicles 19 and Jude 1, and sometimes, if there's more time left, I seek for another scripture, and again, all of these scriptures really tie together. The first two chapters are about being taken by surprise, so I don't know about this one. I remember I didn't take much uh, time to do notes and everything on this one. But this one has Jude. And Jude is talking about how people unawares crept into their midst. In other words, they're kind of surprised. They weren't aware of all these deceivers that came into their midst. And First Chronicles 19 is also about the same 
thing happening. That's, um, I'm just trying to see if I even pasted First Chronicles 19. Here it is. But the prince of the children of Ammon said to Haman, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Are not his servants come unto thee for to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Wherefore Haman took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the midst hard by their buttocks and sent them away. So they were taken by surprise that the king would do this when they were coming there to honor the king. Also, the God's people were taken by surprise in Jude, where it says that these deceivers came into their midst unawares. We need to be aware of the subtlety and of the enemy because the enemy can come up to you and he can be so friendly and nice like you think he's the nicest person in the world through people, through people that believe ideologies or demonic doctrines that obviously are doctrines of destruction. They have a hell-contagious anti-life state of being by what they believe, especially when they worship and a monotheistic, idolatrous perception of God because all they're doing is putting their identity in who they are in independence from the love of God that calls them to repent and get right with God because he has the power to forgive sin because of the quality of his being to be a perfect atoning sacrifice it was always, that quality was always there before Christ came. People were born again of the Spirit from the time of Adam and Eve. The only difference between the New and the Old Testament is that after Christ rose from the dead, the soul and the Spirit could be cleansed before only the physical body could be cleansed by animal sacrifice. But that was enough to allow the presence of God to dwell with their soul and spirit. For it says in John 14, for you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And they were, God Christ expected Nicodemus to know what it meant to be born again before he died on the cross, that it should have been known. And of course, we see many examples of conversion and people that walked in such an intimate relationship with God like Enoch, that they were translated, like Elijah, that they were translated. Yes, it talks about Israel as a nation in the last day, having a heart of flesh, that's talking about Israel as a nation. But there was always a remnant before. And it's complete error for people to think otherwise. That God, the people in the Old Testament didn't have a close relationship with God. They did. There was always a remnant that did. And so I want to go on to uh, what I received on Friday these chapters would make a very powerful message. I received Psalm 33 and Revelations 12 plus Nehemiah 5. And the common theme between these three chapters is that Yahweh will bring deliverance to those who fear him because those who fear him do not have self-seeking motives that break unity with God and with one another but rather bring unity with God and unity with one another, which brings the habitation of God around them and in them, which is 
your shield of protection. You will notice that often when King David is in battle, he is worshiping God and describing how he's dwelling in his presence. He is looking at God's presence as a shield. What did the Lord say to Abraham? That I will be your shield, an exceeding great reward. And so we read here in Psalms 33, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Do you see that? That hope in his mercy. You cannot know the mercy of God if you do not acknowledge the integrity of his love that requires judgment and that it is totally just and right. Only then can you know that you need the mercy of God and truly be reciprocative of it recognizing that in the mercy of God is the very love of God. In fact, in other translations, where that psalm sings out and repeats it over and over, for the mercy of the Lord endureth forever, it says, for the loving kindness of the Lord endureth forever, because only this quality of being could endure forever, that could show such great mercy, that could become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Only that could allow creation to exist that has free will and that would result in an ultimate purpose of that creation being brought into unity with God from those that choose to receive his mercy and his grace so that there can be assured a destiny of heaven where there will never be corruption, where there will be 100% immunity without end, with no corruption. This is the only quality of being that could bring that. And so we see here, what does it say? To deliver their soul from death, those that hope in his mercy. To keep them all alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. And anyone that genuinely fears God will practice waiting on God. What does waiting in God involve? If you look at the original Hebrew word, it has the understanding, and I could go into the symbolic meaning of the word, but I don't have time to go into the symbol letters in this message. But it has the understanding of collection, like holding your hands to collect water or a pool collecting water. It also has the understanding of a rope being twined and as it's twined it becomes strong your identity becomes strong in god as you learn to be in awe of whose presence you're in so that you are not self-initiating in presumption words before him for it says in ecclesiastes god is in heaven and thou upon earth therefore let thy words be few and when you are in awe of whose presence you're in and reciprocating who God is in the integrity of his love from which issues beauty and goodness without corruption. For it says, worship God in the beauty of holiness. Beauty comes out of holiness, which is the integrity of God's love. And so God is calling his people to be those in these last days that learn to be still and know that he is God, to be sensitive to the Spirit of God, to start your prayer meeting maybe with people just being quiet for 10 minutes or so, 
just being still and praying quietly to themselves, and then one can pray out. And another is they sense the Spirit rising in them to pray, and people can agree and say amen. And then maybe after a half an hour of prayer, you spring forth into songs of worship, and you allow the gifts of the Spirit to flow freely in the meeting. I need to add here that I've also written another book, which you can purchase on Amazon. It looks a bit different now on the cover, called Godheadship and Body Invasion, and everything you can do in your local assembly and church so that you do not limit the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. And what you do is you do the things to allow his headship, and one of them is to allow the body to freely share as they sense the Spirit moving them to share. Oh, there may be mistakes here and there. So what if there's a bit of a mess? What are you worried about? God, let God be in control. Let him move by his Spirit through the body. It should be greatly facilitated and encouraged. There should be many people sharing in the meetings before any pastor or someone shares. Freely, spontaneously, without, without asking permission to use a microphone. Only then can God really move. And then in Revelations 12, I can only point out the key verses. This is about the woman that brings forth the man-child. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three square days. That's most likely referring to the nation of Israel in the last days. And we know that Satan is always, right now he's trying to destroy Israel, but Ezekiel 38 and 39 is probably going to be fulfilled. And when people see that happen, it says in Ezekiel there, that then the whole world will know who the true God is. So there'll be a great harvest of souls. And I said, I believe that is God's plan to bring in this harvest in these last days of multitudes into the kingdom of God. So there's war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not, neither were, neither and prevailed not, neither okay their place, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then we read this. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser, our brethren, is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. You know what cast down the accuser of the brethren? When we come into the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God described in Ephesians chapter 4. What has been happening is that each of us are on a journey. And as we're on a journey, there are things that happen in our lives that we don't expect. Look, it's happened to Israel. They didn't expect that attack. They weren't prepared. They should have been. They should have been watching. 
Sometimes we fall asleep spiritually. The enemy takes advantage. And we go through trials in our lives. And then the enemy accuses us. But we humble ourselves and we repent. As our fault is exposed through the trial, maybe we become angry at God. And then we feel terrible like God can't forgive us, but we cry out for mercy and he forgives us and we're cleansed and we're transformed from that corruption into a greater conformity to God. But the enemy is accusing, accusing before God, see, see that person and accusing us, trying to make us believe we're that dross that is no good and not to believe in God's mercy that he can still forgive us. But the time comes when all of these different ones that because they chose to buy of God the gold tried in the fire have been th put through trials in their lives come together as living stones with the testimony of Jesus and in a relationship with him that will not allow ground for the enemy to corporately be able to get in there and cause disunity and a denominative mindset. They have died to the identity of anything of this life, including being accepted by brothers and sisters and fearing rejection. They've been willing to lay down their lives for one another, even if they're misunderstood by being truthful to one another because their integrity is with God, not with people. It is with doing what they know God wants them to say to a brother and sister for their highest good, even what it may mean they are, as it were, crucified by them. And so they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Their shortfallings, they repented of them, they were cleansed and purified. And by the word of their testimony, they testified that they still believed in the Lord unconditionally, even though the trial would cry out for saying, how could you believe in a God that would let that happen in your life? Which is what the accuser would be saying to them. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. This is what casts down the accuser of the brethren, what releases the angels to have victory in the heavenlies and to cast Satan to the earth is the body of Christ coming to the place where there's no ground for the accuser of the brethren anymore because he is, every aspect he tries to hit is now covered, is now covered by testimonies that overcame, testimonies that overcame his accusations. And so, the appointed time comes when all of those testimonies come together into the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. And the accuser of the brethren, Michael and his angels, have the release and the power to now be released by God to cast the wickedness down to the earth that it may be judged finally and eliminated. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And I cannot continue to read more on that. What do we see in Nehemiah that I got by the casting of Lot in relation to this? Read this. What happened in Nehemiah 5 is after they came back 
from the captivity in Babylon, they started charging interest on people that couldn't make their ends meet and putting them in bondage. And so Nehemiah brings a whole crowd against these people that are putting their brothers and sisters in bondage, which is contrary to what the Word of God taught. It taught never to do that. And so he says this, And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen, and will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Brothers and sisters, are we putting our brothers and sisters in bondage by accusing them, by requiring things of them that they don't have the power to do, and holding them in our accusations? Are we cutting one another off instead of Receiving one another as Christ received us as sinners? Are we holding on to our denominative shell so that we give the kind of cold shoulder, oh, I love you, brother, but I'm a little uneasy around you because you don't fit into our mold. So, hi. Oh, yeah, I'm friendly to you because I want people to know I'm a good Christian. Yeah. Oh, but I feel a bit uneasy around you. Oh, bye-bye. Or are we herding the sheep in our midst? Are we the sheep that fall the waters for the weak sheep that are already weak and sensitive instead of loving them? God gives more abundant honor unto the power that lacks. When the body is functioning fully in a church, those members that are least esteemed, God will pour more abundant honor on. So that those that tend to be looked up to because of their charisma and natural giftings, are brought down and are humbled so that the valleys are raised up and the mountains are brought down. Brothers and sisters, I see many churches where the weak sheep leave the church after a while because there's insensitivity to them and they're hurt easily. Because there wasn't the love, because of the loves of the world that causes hardness of heart. People watch hours of sports as Christians instead of spending time in prayer. They spend more time watching sports with their emotions and they need to repent of the gods of amusement, the gods of pleasure, the gods of idleness. These are the things that cause us hardness of heart so that we do not know that powerful baptism of love that will fulfill Christ's prayer in John 17. And finally today I received Numbers 33 and 2 Timothy 4 and the common theme is wholeheartedness to not compromise with evil but to expose and oppose it in order to overcome for ultimate purpose which is the purpose of God. And I cannot speak too long to this. It says this in Numbers 33, beginning in verse 55, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye 
let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. That is serious. They were going to receive the full judgment of God if they spared the enemy. It's easy for me to spare my flesh. It is easy for me to spare others. What causes a person to come to a place where they're willing to not spare themselves or others the truth in love? It is basically having the integrity and the humility. You see, that's what's birthed out of the genuine fear of God. It corners you to the place of being very honest with yourself before God that, so that you don't hide your weaknesses from God. You confess them. You don't hide your sins from God. You confess them. It corners you to the place of humility that corners you to the place of honesty that, and it corners you to the place of honesty that corners you to the place of humility so that his grace can be on you because you repent, because you truly repent. Then there can be wholeheartedness. And so in 2 Timothy 4, 1-8, we see this wholeheartedness described in these verses. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We do not overcome by our own self-sufficiency and willpower. We overcome by coming into the genuine fear of God that reciprocates the love of God and the two aspects of his love. First, the holiness of his love, out of which we then can reciprocate the mercy of his love. And when we perceive the love of God aright like that, it results in a faith in us so that faith works by the perception of the love of God. Faith works by love, as it mentions in Galatians. Genuine faith is reciprocating out of love for God, who he is, with a thankful, humble, reverent heart that is filled with joy unspeakable, the joy of faith, unspeakable and full of glory. So thank you for listening to this message. God bless you all.